welcome to Masala History Podcast. My name is Deepthi and today I'm going to host the first of our two or maybe even three episodes dedicated to March, which is Women's History Month. In dedication to women's history, we're going to talk about a series of um, women or women-related topics um, on our podcast. And to kickstart off this merriment, I wanted to bring in the greatest of all women that we know from South Asia, the great goddess Devi. As an exploration of what Devi is or what Devi means um, within the Hindu scriptures, I wanted to explore Devi Mahatmya, a 6th century um, scripture in Sanskrit that was written and had enjoyed and continues to enjoy widespread popularity throughout South Asia and especially within um, Hinduism. We've seen her many, many times over so much that she is burnt into our vocabulary and into our memory. When we think of the Devi, we think of the multi-armed goddess, ferocious in form sometimes, um, astride, uh, perhaps on a lion or a ferocious tiger, and who is ready to fight demons and win battles. She is a woman of power and courage and valor and beauty. And this is the visual recollection that we have of the great goddess. We also see Devi in other forms and in common parlance across South Asia. For example, if a woman gets really angry, uh, chances are that you've heard people refer to as, oh my God, she just became like a Badrakali, which is sort of the the ferocious, dark form of Devi. We also hear that you are like the great mother, the goddess Ambiga, yet another form of Devi. And so, as such, within South Asia, there is a whole host of varied forms within which Devi is understood. Where do these forms of the Devi come from? What are the basis from which we derive these kind of common um, literal and visual vocabulary about Devi and her associated forms? This is the topic that we are going to address in this episode. Along with this, at the very end, we are going to ask an interesting question, um, and that is if the goddess was a feminist. Well, we are celebrating um, Women's History Month after all, so we do indeed need to talk about the feminist aspects of the great goddess. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast itself. Devi Mahatmya as a scripture was written around 6th century CE. It's divided into 13 chapters and each of those chapters belong within three charitas or three different episodes that educate. These three episodes are really tales of her ways of being. Unlike um, other Puranas uh, that were made before and after Devi Mahatmya, the Devi Mahatmya tells you that Devi is the true and only cause of triumph over evil not the other gods, and especially not the male gods. Within Devi Mahatmya, there are three stories, the, the three charitas, and they kind of explain the development of the Devi, starting from the 
minute or the invisible or the immaterial form of the Devi to her complete material powerful self that is able to go out and fight battles in many forms. The first of these three stories which uh, looks at Devi as an immaterial presence is uh, one that addresses her as Mahamaya. Mahamaya meaning the great illusion. Mahamaya is present in all beings as Devi Mahatmya tells you as wisdom or as ignorance. She becomes the reason for Vishnu's cosmic sleep the in upon Ananta the great serpent. And I will get into the details of this story in just a couple of minutes. This story continues into a second narrative, the second of the charitas, where she's presented in her most famous perhaps of forms, Mahishasura Mardini, the vanquisher of the demon Mahisha. Here, Devi is presented as the power, the Tejas, that exists in all beings and that Tejas, the power that came out of the gods themselves to have a female form in, in order to defeat the shape-shifting demon Mahisha who cannot be killed by a male god form. In the third story, the Devi once again appears as the avenger of two demons, twins this time, Shumbha and Nishumbha, who once again cannot really be uh, destroyed by the male gods. But here, a curious thing happens within Devi Mahatmya. Instead of an original story, the Devi Mahatmya repurposes and co-ops the story of a local goddess named Vindhya Vasini, who is supposed to have fought Shumbha and Nishumbha up along the Vindhyas. Vindhya Vasini was supposed to be worshipped as Krishna Gopala, the Lord Krishna Gopala's sister. And she was supposed to be married. But in Devi Mahatmya, her story, Vindhya Vasini's story, gets repurposed as that of this young, beautiful, maiden, unmarried goddess the Devi, who is in that form known as Ambika. And she takes the story of Shumbha and Shumbha and fights them, but she does that not on the Vindhyas, but she, the Devi becomes sort of pan-Indian and fights the god, these demons on the side of the gods atop the Himalayas. I want to go into a little bit of details of these three stories because they are so full of details and um, I the Sanskrit text here has been translated into English by a multiple of scholars of whom I've really followed only two or three, particularly that of the work of Thomas Coburn. And you can see a glimpse of how rich Devi Mahatmya's scripture is in the details that order the universe that is focused on the great goddess. The story starts, as does all stories in the Indian subcontinent, as a story within a story. You know it's good when there's a story within a story, right? So this one, the Devi Mahatmya, starts as a story within a story in a format that we've all heard of as children. Once upon a time, 
there was a king, Surata, by name. Surata becomes the king of an entire world age, reborn as Savarni. The narrator of the story is sage Markandeya, and he is going to tell the story of how this king became this cosmic lord. Surata, as an earthly king, was noble, but following a coup, he is ousted and he wanders through forest after forest until he gets to the hermitage of the sage Medhas. Here, he, he meets the wandering merchant Samadhi as well. Samadhi also has been ousted from his uh, rich merchant life uh, for some reason. And so they both start discussing their plight, the king and the merchant. They then go to Sage Medus to ask about their suffering and the pleasure that their abusers enjoy in spite of the sins the abusers have committed, arguably sins against, you know, the king and the merchant. Sage Medus says that all of that is just illusion and delusion brought about by the great goddess Mahamaya. The pattern of a story within a story within a story takes on its full form here. The narrator Markandeya, who is supposed to be telling the story, relinquishes the authority of the narrator to Sage Medhus. Sage Medhus, then the sub-narrator of the story, proceeds to tell Surata and Samadhi the stories that make up all the stories of the Devi within Devi Mahatmya. Here is the first story that Sage Medhas tells Surata and Samadhi. The first story is very short. It, it lacks the kind of details that you see in the second and the third story, perhaps because of the immaterial dimension of the goddess. It says, During the time of Pralaya, the great flood, which stands for the cyclical creation and destruction of the universe, all that is there is the cosmic ocean on which lies recumbent Lord Vishnu on Ananta, the cosmic serpent who is coiled and hooded. He is asleep in a state of unknowing. In this story, Brahma emerges from the lotus that blooms out of the Lord Vishnu's navel. The Brahma that thus sprouted is then going to go on to create the next cycle of the universe. But from the dirt in Vishnu's navel appears two demons, Madhu and Kaitabha, who try to kill Brahma so that nothing, nothing gets created. Now Brahma gets really scared because he does not want to stop the act of creation. If he is dead, then nothing gets created, right? So he wants to wake Vishnu up from his yogic slumber so that he, Vishnu can then destroy these naughty demons. But Vishnu is asleep, in the sleep of unknowing, as it says. So what does Brahma do? Brahma immediately calls to Mahamaya, who he says is personified sleep, and who is keeping Vishnu sleeping and unknowing. Now there is an excerpt that I am going to read to you about the prayer that Brahma offers to the great goddess to make sure that she relieves herself from Vishnu and thereby Vishnu can raise up from his slumber. It goes something like this. O Goddess, 
By you, everything is supported. By you, the world is created. By you, is it all protected and you always consume it at the end of the time. At the world's emanation, you have the form of creation. In its protection, you have the form of steadiness. Likewise, at the end of the world, you have the form of destruction. Oh, you who consist the world. You are the great knowledge, the great illusion, the great insight, the great memory, the great delusion, the great goddess, and also the great demoness. You are the primordial matter, Prakriti, of everything, manifesting the triad of constituent strands, the gunas. Then he proceeds to mention all of the Devi's different attributes in a way to uh, worship and praise her. Then he continues, You are auspiciousness, the queen, modesty, intelligence, the knower, bashfulness, well-being, contentment too, tranquility and forbearance are you. And then Brahma proceeds to praise her weapons, all the weapons that you that she has. And she goes, Terrible with your sword and spear, likewise with cudgel and disgust, with conge and bow, with arrows, sling and iron mace as your weapons. Whatever and wherever anything exists, whether it be real or unreal, oh, you have everything in your soul. Of all that, you are the power. How then can you be adequately praised? By you, even Lord Vishnu, the creator of the world, the protector of the world, who also consumes the world, is now subjected to the power of sleep. Who here could be capable of praising you? Since the gods Vishnu, Shiva and I have been given bodily form by you, who could possibly be able to praise you sufficiently? This introductory prayer that is offered by Brahma kind of shows a couple of different things that's happening in 6th century India. For one, the Devi, the Devi cult is now strong enough not only to publish a treatise, but in that treatise, the, all the three triumvirate gods, Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva, are subordinated to her. So the line goes, the gods Vishnu, Shiva and Brahma have been bodily formed from you or by you. That is what Brahma says to the Devi. So in this sense, Devi Mahatmya actually creates a primary narrative where the Devi gets the utmost importance. She is the reason why everything exists. At the same time, you see that gone are the days of the Vedic uh, gods. Um, all the Indras and Agnis of the Vedic times that were prevalent have uh, kind of become sub-gods in this culture. In their place, the true god has been Vishnu for a while and Vishnu has been said as the creator of the world, particularly in Devi Mahatmya. In Vishnu Purana too, um, Vishnu is the creator of the world. He creates Brahma who then creates the universe. So Brahma is also subordinated to Vishnu. What you see here in the 6th century of the common era when Devi Mahatmya is written is this uh, battle between the Vaishnavite and the Devi cults. They're competing for ascendancy. And so the supremacy of the goddess is paramount in Devi Mahatmya because they're establishing Devi's rupam, the ideal, as the primordial one. 
And this is what the first story does. Now, the second story is probably the one that we have heard the most. It is the famous story of Devi as Mahishasura Mardini. Mahisha, the demon, has vanquished the gods and become the overlord of everything. Indra and others run to the mighty threesome, the triumvirate Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva, and complain to them that they have been destroyed. Their livings have been taken away. In anger, Vishnu, Brahma and Shiva produces this Tejas, which can be termed as a splendor or energy or something like that. And this Tejas sort of comes forth, emanates from them, from the triumvirate, and from the bodies of, uh, of the other gods like Indra, and together they come to a single place and becomes a woman. From Shiva's Tejas, from his splendor, the Devi's mouth was produced. Her long tresses, her hair came from Yama, her arms came from Vishnu, her eyes were the splendor of the two twilights, the Ashwini brothers, and her ears, that of the wind. Krishna also gave her his disgust, pulling it forth from his own disgust. Varuna gave her a conch and Agni, the fire god, gave her a spear. The ocean gave her a radiant lotus, while the Himalayas gave her a lion to ride upon and various other jewels. The mountain as the locus of uh, you know, mines and jewels is very clear in this description. After she is thus made, the Devi bellowed aloud with laughter over and over again. The entire atmosphere, it says in Devi Mahatmya, was filled with her terrible noise. And from that deafening, ear-shattering noise, a great echo arose. All the worlds quaked and the oceans shook. The earth trembled and the mountains tottered. The gods, utterly delighted, cried, Victory to the one who rides on a lion. The gods, again, it repeats, utterly delighted, cried, Victory to the one who rides on a lion. I particularly like this description because this is exactly what you see even today in over-dramatized Hindi serials, like the woman goes, ha, 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 right? <laughs> the Devi sort of bellowed in laughter. And so that scripture, that 6th century Kamnara scripture that was written about the Devi, you still see that in current visual culture and in our oral vocabulary as well, that reverberating, loud, fearsome laughter is part and parcel of even today's uh, cinema and TV. I mentioned that to show that there is current relevance to Devi Mahatmya as old as it is and as much uh, distanced as it is from our contemporary lives. To continue with the story, Mahisha too hears her laughter, the one that is trembling the earth and making the mountains totter, right? And Mahisha gets super pissed. And he says, what nonsense is this that, you know, there is a woman out there who's trying to kill me and who's laughing and making the earth tremble. So Mahisha sends forth his armies. The Devi just vanquishes them like, says Devi Mahatmya, quote, the way fire consumes tinder. Then, after the armies are vanquished, it becomes a one-on-one -on -one 
fight between the Devi and some of the commanders or the valiant he- demon heroes of Mahisha's uh, big gigantic army. They are all eventually vanquished. Finally, the buffalo demon Mahisha enters the fray and he went through Devi's forces with a vengeance. I love the description of uh, Mahisha's attack on the Devi's troops. But before that, uh, before I give you a glimpse into that, I want to mention that Mahisha Asura, the, the demon Mahisha, has the power to transform himself into animals. Most commonly, he's seen as he's transformed into a buffalo, but he takes other shapes as well. So in effect, he's a shape-shifting demon um, and he has gotten this blessing from Lord Shiva that he can never be killed by a man or a male, which is also the reason why the gods have created the Devi from their own Tejas. So here's how Mahisha attacks Devi's troops. Quote, some of them he slew with the blow of a snout, others with his stamping hoofs. Now he's a buffalo, right? Others were lashed with his tail, still others rent by his horns. Angrily, the intrepid buffalo pounded the earth with his hoofs. Hurling up mountains and his horns and bellowing, the earth was trampled flat by his rapid whirlings and the ocean, flailed by his tail, ran everywhere in flood tide. Clouds were torn to shreds, rent by his swaying horns. Seeing Mahisha in action... The goddess gets so angry that she turns almost black. And from here on in the story, she's called Chandika. To escape Chandika, Mahisha first becomes a lion, then a man, then an elephant, and then a buffalo again. He loudly bellows and hurls mountains at her, to which she says, Roar, roar for a moment, you fool, while I become intoxicated. When I finally kill you, it is the gods who soon will roar. After she says that, she takes a mighty swig of alcohol, so Devi drinks, jumps down on Mahisha's back, forces her foot upon his neck so that he can't shapeshift, and with the other, with one swift motion, she severs his head. This is the quintessential scene that is repeated for decades and centuries as the titular sculptural model for the Mahishasura Mardini. We see it across the Indian subcontinent, not only in the, within the Indian subcontinent, but you can see it in Southeast Asia and other areas where Hinduism was practiced. And this is sort of the climactic scene of the second story, the second charita in Devi Mahatmya. The third story kind of runs along similar veins, but here there are different kinds of manifestations of the Devi. The evil ones here in the third story are the demon twins Shumbha and Nishumbha, who are once again unbeatable. Devi, the great goddess, has retired to the Himalayas after the, the battle with Mahisha. And she, but she's told the gods that, hey, I'm going to come down and help you anytime you need my assistance. Right. So when this happens, when Nishumba and Shumba comes out of nowhere, the gods, all together en masse, goes to the Himalayas and prays for the Devi to come down and help them. 
But what happens here is a curious mixture of different kinds of women goddesses. As they call out to the Himalayas, Parvati, the wife of Shiva, goddess Parvati, hears them and asks who they are calling for, for she does not know any goddesses other than herself. Upon hearing this, the outer skin of Parvati bursts out of her body and becomes kaushiki, the word for kosha in Sanskrit, kosha being skin or sheath, and she becomes kaushiki, and tells Parvati that it is Parvati that the gods are praying to. At this moment, kaushiki starts calling Parvati Ambika, the great mother goddess. Up until this point, point in the story, I was also not aware that at some point Devi Mahatmya appropriates not just the story of Vindhya Vasini, the local goddess that I mentioned earlier, but assimilates that story with the form of the goddess Parvati. Like us, Parvati too at this point is unaware that she has the latent great goddess under her skin. Once Kaushiki departs, Parvati becomes dark and becomes Kalika, the dark one. The demon twins now hear about the beautiful Ambika, the great mother goddess, and tries to woo her because they have everything else in the world. Now they want the most beautiful woman as well. They try to woo her by sending a messenger to which Ambika says, quote, he who conquers me in battle, who overcomes my pride, whose strength is compar- comparable to mine in the world, only he will be my husband. End quote. The messenger who's gone to meet with the Devi to, to ask her to marry the twins says, quote, All the gods led by Indra were no match in battle for Shumbha and others. How can you, a lone woman, go into battle with them? End quote. Ambika says, no, we definitely have to get on the battlefield. That's where this marriage proposal will be decided. I'm sure some of the women, in, you know, us women in India would have wanted to do the same when we were thrown with the prospect of the arranged marriage. But here Ambika definitely says no. The demons get really angry and ask her to be dragged by her hair to them. But nobody can touch Ambika. In the battlefield, from Ampika's forehead, as her anger emanates Kali, the black one. And Kali here is described in a very ferocious in very ferocious terms. It says in the Devi Mahatmya, sprang forth Kali with her dreadful face, carrying sword and noose. She carries a strange sculpt-topped staff and wore a garland of human heads. She was shrouded in a tiger skin and looked utterly gruesome and with her emaciated skin. Her mouth gaped widely, terrifying with its lolling tongue. Her reddened ears were deeply sunken and her mouth filled the directions with drawers. The Kali comes forth and starts destruction immediately. She, she in, in some of the later paintings, especially the Basoli paintings made in the Punjab hills, the Kali is seen as this really fearsome creature that is not just like, you know, 
piecing out the asuras but even eating their um, the army uh, the elephants uh, the war elephants within the battlefield um it's quite an interesting painting actually and if you want to take a look at that i'm going to post that with our show notes on our website www.masalahistory.com so go check out uh, our website for these images after kali uh, is set forth and freed from the forehead of ambika many other shaktis or separate female powers totaling a group of six or oh sorry seven emerge from ambika now these seven female powers the shaktis are the shaktis of the male gods that were invested in her then an eighth shakti emerges out of the goddess's body itself so a total of um, eight shaktis or eight female powers aside from ambika and aside from kali comes forth out of the eight uh, female powers seven of them are the powers vested in ambika by the male gods and one is her own this is a rather complicated matrix the goddess both emanates from and can emanate into other goddesses forms what she does not do is produce in any form a male god hers is um, sort of the female power the tejas of the male god but once emanated she's purely feminine in energy and it's a very complicated um, theo- uh, theological concept uh, but it kind of makes uh, for a simplified version that all the goddesses are one and all goddesses are the great goddess then together with these eight um female powers the shaktis uh, ambika herself and kali the goddess ambika proceeds to fight the armies at this point quite anticlimactically comes raktabija a, a demon who can regenerate himself in identical forms from each drop of blood or presumably any bodily fluids that come out of him the eight shaktis attack him but more of him comes out Then Ambika devises a plan. The great goddess stabs him and any blood that came out and any of the demons thus born Kali went in and consumed them all. In this fashion they attack him until all the blood is dried up and thereby he dies. Soon after this one of the twins Nishumbha is defeated and killed. At this point Shumbha the other twin demon accuses the goddess of using other goddesses but then saying that she does it alone after all the challenge that she had placed is to defeat her and her alone in the battlefield right shimbha says that she's not fighting alone she is doing it with help but at the minute that the shaktis hear this all the shaktis merge into the devi instead of going back to the respective gods from where they had initially come and then the devi says i alone exists here in the world what second other than i is there saying this she proceeds to kill shumbha after the third story ends sage mathis then talks about how devi turns to her devotees to educate them and tell them how to worship her then mathis tells surata and samadhi are 
king and merchant to whom these stories are first being told to worship one who is the source of both delusion and knowledge the mahamaya markandeya our original sage narrator reappears to tell us that the actually we indeed need to do all these different things to get blessings from the devi at this point king suratha sorry the king surata and merchant samadhi have already been worshiping the great goddess samadhi the merchant having seen through the illusion of worldly attachments asks to be freed of his ego and therefore from the cycle of rebirth the, the devi grants him this wish surata on the other hand chooses to restore his kingship and future kingship that will never end and thereby becomes a cosmic lord thanks to devi's blessings these stories that i just told um conversely is not a story at all but they actually are incantations of the verses that are supposed to be powerful invocation of the goddess that is part of the process of praying to her so in effect if i were to think of this as a podcast that's worshiping devi i should be blessed because i have chanted some of the invocations here albeit in english the close attention to descriptive detail is meant therefore to be recited to picture the devi and she appears in different forms as you see in these stories so when i started the podcast i mentioned brahma's um worship of mahamaya in which he immediately starts by calling out her gunas the attributes her weapons her expressions um her posture and her physical form so by in by actually repeating those incantations you are supposed to picture devi in your head it is from this idea that all the forthcoming sculptures and paintings of the great goddess exist within hinduism it is meant to be a meditative act to look at the devi in sculpture or in painting or any other visual form and then to chant these incantations to repeat what the scriptures tell you the devi mahatma tells you is a way to worship her and achieve her blessings this is what devi mahatmya is all about what is particularly interesting is also that many scholars especially modern ones have tried to consider devi mahatmya as a feminist scripture there is a book called is the goddess a feminist i find this book really fascinating and uh, a number of scholars discuss the various aspects of the devi the the scripture itself to figure out whether the devi is indeed a feminist this is of course an anachronistic um association of course we don't know if something along the lines of feminism existed in 6th century of the common era when this was written but the fact that the devi as a scripture exists in itself shows that there is some amount of importance placed on the female energy rather than the female as a woman um in the 6th century indian society 
What this means is that Devi is actually a female energy and not necessarily a woman. The Devi could be seen simultaneously as Humes, one of the scholars who writes in the book, is the goddess of feminist, says, quote, the formless absolute reality, end quote. She could be the primordial matter, the Adi Shakti, the first power, and Vishnu's savior. The complexities of the Puranas and the many layers of confluence and divergence of the narrative of these texts are, of course, for another discussion, but here we want to think about Devi as this unimaginable female power and energy that exists alongside the male gods to vanquish evil and bring about good in the world. So we start March by invoking the great Devi and thereby celebrating what should be a kick-ass Women's History Month at Masala History. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode from Masala History on Devi the Great Goddess. If you're interested in more of our episodes, we have many more on our website www.masalahistory.com. So don't forget to subscribe for, for not only listening to the past episodes, but to get future episodes as they come out. We are also on iTunes and um, we constantly update um, you on how these uh, podcasts are made uh, on Instagram at at masala underscore history. See you next time.